We live in a day when the understanding in our society of the things of God is very low ebb. And sadly for some who come to faith in Jesus Christ, even as they learn, their understanding has a long way to go. It's great they've come to Christ, but so many have so much to learn. We could say, in one sense, we do not see open hostility to God's truth. In one manner, we don't face people barraging us or coming into our places of worship and shouting us down or throwing things at us. However, perhaps the problem is even worse because people are just so apathetic about the things of God. People just look upon us as a quaint, odd, out of touch, small group of people who have little to offer the world. Not even worth opposing. Because of course, in their view, we have got it so wrong. And there, there's no point exercising any hostility because we don't threaten them. The witness of God's people in our day sometimes confounds people. They look at us blankly. You mean to say you actually believe that Jesus is a risen, living Savior? They just can't understand what we would be telling them. Tell them that they're living in their sin and they look blankly. I'm just doing what feels right and good to me. And when we challenge them closely, we may find them getting a little hostile. They may not like it when we say to them that they are dead and need Jesus. But then that's nothing new. Throughout the ages, those who have been faithful in Jesus Christ and proclaimed the gospel have always been confronted by those who are hostile to them. Right throughout Scripture we see again and again the lives of men and women when they were confronted by God's people and God's truth. They began to be hostile. At first they may have been detached and little interested, but as God by His Spirit worked, they became hostile. They don't want to hear what in the heart of hearts they know by the Spirit of God is true. And that's what we see happening in Acts chapter 5. And we're looking at these verses from verse 17. What uh, an amazing uh, set of circumstances we have here in these verses. The hostility note begins with the religious leaders. And I wonder if that's the same for us sometimes. The world is so apathetic. Religious leaders who are wanting to keep a cozy religious a veneer without any reality or truth. They don't like it when we tell them that they're wrong and they'll become hostile and try to be go against us. But look here at what is happening in this work. For, we're talking this evening about the witness of the apostles in the face of trial. And what a witness it is in the face. Remember, they are in trial. They've already been proclaiming the word. They've already been challenged 
back in the previous verses. But many people came to know the Lord. And of course that leads to the high priests and a lack of comfort in the Sanhedrin. And they become jealous. And that's really the first thing I want to speak about. The witness that is hindered by jealousy. Witness is hindered by jealousy. It is hindered by the jealousy of the Sanhedrin. Verse 17. Then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. Now we might wonder why should they be jealous? This was the truth of God after all. This was the word of the Messiah. But they were jealous because they were focusing not on what was true, but upon what was affecting them. And they could see people leaving them and following the apostles and the teaching about Jesus Christ. And they were losing their control. They were losing their influence over the ordinary people. And if they lost that influence, then their place would be less important and they would not have the same veneer, the outward respect among the people. And so their jealousy was what drove them to seek to have the apostles arrested and put in prison. It was their jealousy of their ministry. They didn't think about what the men were saying. They didn't examine in a right way what the apostles were talking about. They had already blanked out that. They were blind to the truth. And their jealousy of the religious... uh, of the new found zeal and the faith grew until they put the apostles in prison. Wonder can jealousy hinder our, our ways today? Jealousy certainly hinders ordinary relationships. Brothers or sisters can be jealous of, some, of a sibling of one another, perhaps one perceives that another is treated more kindly and that jealousy, that focus on self, you see, can get out of control (coughs) and they lose all sort of sense of perspective. They become sulky. They don't enjoy the good things they have because they're so worried, so jealous somebody else has. And that can affect not only families, it can affect business people, it can affect all kinds of people. Jealousy hinders right relationships. But what about the church? If that's the way it affects the world, is it not true that in the same way, the jealousy and the hostility of the world comes even to the believers today? And sadly, (coughs) it's not a jealousy from the world, but from those who claim to be followers of of Jesus. Could it be that we are jealous as Christ's people because there are others who have more people listening to their sermons? Others in their churches have more people attending and we're jealous a little bit that they are attracting greater interest. Could it be that you allow that jealousy to eat up your own relationship with the Lord and with other believers, that you're so thinking about that that you've forgotten to focus 
on what is true and what is right and the reason we come together and the things that we believe and hold fast as the people of God. See, we could be guilty of jealousy. And if we are, it will hinder the work of the gospel. It will make us less uh, faithful and honoring of Christ than we ought to be. Here we see jealousy from the religious authorities. I wonder, is that a word for us today? Not that we're going to put people in prison, but just that emotion eats up our hearts, detracts from what is right. And maybe even within a fellowship, one is jealous of another. One thinks somebody else is getting more attention. People get all sorts of stupid ideas. And because they haven't thought nor looked at the whole picture and they're too self-focused. And it destroys a fellowship. It ruins because it brings with it critical uh, uh, criticism and negativity which should not be present. The jealousy of the scribes and Pharisees certainly hindered the work. Well, it did in one sense. But of course... In the sovereign purposes of God, it was overruled. But here we have the apostles put in prison. If only those people in the Sanhedrin had sat down and opened the scriptures and said, let's examine to see, could this be true? Could this be the Messiah that they're talking about? Jealousy. Witnesses hindered. Secondly, Witness is inspired by God's word, God's action, and God's word. Inspired by God's actions and God's word. So the apostles are put in prison. Not something any of us would want to be put in prison for the sake of the gospel. But if that's where we have to go to be faithful to Jesus Christ, then let's be clear, we need to be faithful to Jesus Christ, not trying to get an easy life. And disobey him. But what happened in prison? One of the most amazing things happened. In the middle of the night, the angel of the Lord came and brought them out, opened the doors, brings them out of prison, and sends them on their way. What an amazing action of God to to release his people out of prison, to open prison doors, to escort the apostles right past the prison guards and send them out to minister the word. What an action. And then we have the word of God to them. He said, Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. Not only would the apostles already been inspired by the fact that God miraculously led them out of prison, but they were told then to go and do the very thing they had already been doing. And so God in his word inspires them, keep on. Don't worry about who will stand against you. Go and tell these people the full message of this new life. And the word of God is very clear to them. And they can have no mistake that they are to go and preach. Hold nothing back. Tell them the full message. 
Don't be tailoring your message because you see somebody in the crowd that might feel hurt or annoyed if you tell them that. The full message was to be given to the people. They must point men and women to their sin. They must be clear in how they give them the reality of their situation. And they must proclaim the cross of Jesus Christ who alone is able to save. The full message. And that would mean not just the message of salvation, but the message of new life that is in Christ. The message of the new heavens and the new earth that is to come. The message of the day of judgment as yet is to come. Now we may think ourselves to be in the midst of trouble in these days when the world is against us and when we're sidelined, when laws are being proposed and passed that are utterly contrary to things of God. But are we not inspired by the action of God? Do we not inspired when we think back to what Jesus Christ did on the cross? Even as we remember in that last Sabbath day, His blood was shed for who? For you. His blood was shed for me. He died that I might have life, that you might have life. What an amazing action. He didn't open physical prison doors, but he opened the door of your heart and has called you to himself and given you eternal life. What a wonderful and amazing action of God. And he has surely inspires us when we think about that. Our Fathers and brothers and mothers and sisters and husbands and and wives and daughters and neighbors and friends and everyone else in this community, surely they need to hear the message. You are dead. But here's what God has done for me. He's opened my heart. I've seen my rottenness. And through Jesus Christ it is cleansed and made new. If we come and know Jesus Christ as Lord, we should be speaking the message. But not only are we inspired by the action of God, His very Word tells us that this is, in fact, what we are to do. He commands us to go into all the nations and preach the gospel. Earlier in the book of Acts, back in chapter 1, he has told his people, he says to them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in Judea, and in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Or if you want to translate that into modern language, you will be my witnesses in Balamone. You will be my witnesses in County Antrim and in Northern Ireland and in Ireland and in the UK and to the ends of the earth, Spain and France and wherever else God in his purpose leads us. Surely we should be inspired because of the great work of God and his word that tells us to go and proclaim the mighty wonders of God. And what are we to tell them? Just exactly the same thing as they were to give to the apostles. The full message of this new life. Nothing more, nothing less. And we must cut no corners or add anything else to the message of the truth. 
And so we need to begin with men in their sin. And we need them to see their sin. There is absolutely no point talking to a sinner who is dead in their sin about a loving Savior who wants to help them until they know they need help. And so we've got to cut through their arrogance and their selfishness and their feeling of self-importance and thinking that all is well. We need to get the word to their heart. And I can't do that, and neither can you. And therefore we ought to be on our knees praying that the seed of the word will open their hearts as he has opened mine and yours to know God. Because it's only then we can apply the full message and all the wonderful works of Christ on the cross and say his blood cleanses you. It's only when the Holy Spirit works on someone that we can tell them this then is how you are to live. You are to respect for life. You are to realize that God has defined marriage and it is between one man and one woman. You see, when we talk sometimes to the godless of our day, these things are all completely, they're they're dead to them. Because they don't understand there's a God who has given us a word and a way of life. They're so far removed from him that even hostility they think towards the gospel isn't worth it. Friends, when someone is hostile to you, rejoice. Because at least they've begun to understand something of the impact of the truth in their lives. If they remain bland and completely unaffected, they haven't begun to think about what it will mean to turn their back on sin and to serve the living God. So let's be witnesses inspired by God's action, inspired by his word, following the example of the apostles. But then thirdly, the witness confounds the authorities. What would I have done? What would you have done when you've been imprisoned and suddenly you're released? Well, after what I've just said, there's only one thing we could do. We need to go and preach. But take a sinner, a man who knows nothing of God, and there you are imprisoned for something, and then you're released. Would you go right back to doing the very thing that landed you in prison? Would you do it openly and in public where you will be easily recognized? That is just balmy. To the ungodly, it makes absolutely no sense to go into such a situation. Here, the authorities are utterly confounded. They're confounded, first of all, by the fact that the prison is locked The guards are in place, but there's no one inside. So God has worked. He brought out the apostles. He sent them on their way. And the prison was still locked, or locked after them. And the guards have no recollection of anyone passing by them. They've done their duty. They didn't know the prison was empty. If they had known they'd escaped, there'd have been a hubbaloo earlier than whenever the Sanhedrin gather the full council together to deal with these things. What an embarrassment. Here you have the full council. What are we going to do with these men? Bring them up so we can speak to them. And they're all there as leaders seeking to know what to do. But the prison is empty. They're absolutely confounded. 
And that's only added to when then they're told, these men who were in prison, what are they doing? They're standing in the temple courts and they're teaching the people. Teaching the people the full message of God. The Sanhedrin is completely blindsided. How could this ever happen? Who would do this? And we note how this is recorded. They, hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were puzzled, wondering what would come of this. In the depths of their hearts, they knew that something of God was afoot. But they just weren't prepared to bow down and they're complete being confounded. They just weren't prepared to bow down and say, Lord, show us the truth. Friends, today, when you and I go out to witness to the authorities, have no doubt that it will confound them. When we talk about sin, they'll be utterly puzzled. Because to them, the, the way of life is just whatever you want it to be. That's humanism. As long as it feels good to me, as long as I don't really do anybody any harm, but even that now is beginning to go by the board, I'll be alright. And it confounds them when we tell them that actually all that they're thinking is absolutely wrong. And they're starting in the wrong place. And they have no hope. And that when death comes, they'll appear before a Savior. Well, they don't believe in a God. So they're dumbfounded and at odds with it. Let's pray that that seed of the Word might cause them to ask, what will come of this? And may there even be a chink of light that they might think to themselves, we need to learn more about this. Oh, that the Spirit of God would come upon people and help them to realize that though they are confounded by the gospel because it is just so foreign to them, that they see in my life, in yours, and in the life of the church of Jesus Christ, something, something that says, this is real. And it's better than what I have. May they be called out of the darkness to know Christ. And to seek him. They may be utterly confounded and dumbfounded by the fact that we are so committed to Jesus. That we give up one day and seven to the worship of God. And don't go and enjoy ourselves and do all that they do. That will dumbfound them. But may it also challenge them. And bring them to know the way of life. And so witness Let's be clear. Witness dumbfounds people. We need to be patient. We need to talk to them. We need to explain what we're doing, why we believe this. We need to pray earnestly that the Spirit of God will be upon them. Then, fourthly, the witness is an obedience to God. We've already covered this in one sense, but I couldn't not deal with this verse where Peter answers the Sanhedrin. Obedience to God. Because what does Peter tell them when they are told, don't go and teach anymore in this name? And what does Peter say? Verse 29, Peter replies, We must obey God rather than men. There's the thing that you and I need to keep in mind. 
with regards to all of our lives. Our obedience is to God rather than men. That is true with regards to our submission to the state. We obey God rather than men. It is true in regard to our relationships with business partners. We obey God rather than get into some situation with some other person which is going to lead us to sin. Do not be unequally yoked. We obey God rather than the passions that may be in our hearts. We obey God rather than men. Even if sometimes that means within our families we have to walk a different path, a difficult road, but God is our Lord. And if we are to witness, it will be in obedience to God first and foremost every single day of our lives. We're to continually seek to do His will. Wherever that leads us, we're to glorify Him. And if that means trouble, if that means we're going to be imprisoned, then we know our God and we are comforted and know that He knows us. And there are those today who obey God and are imprisoned because of the state in which they live. But they are confident that God is true, gracious and loving. We may have to put up with difficult situations, perhaps with others in business, others in family, others in other relationships, if we're obeying God. But under God we will work those things out. And we will be able at other times to show utter grace and demonstrate it's not to do with them, it's to do with our God and their wrong ideas. Witness always is obedient to God. Where we disobey God, in fact, we let our witness down. We dishonor Him. And so we must be prepared to stick out like the proverbial sore thumb at times in obedience to God. Look what the apostles did. They went straight back and they began to teach the message. They didn't obey the counsel, but they did what they knew was right. Witness is in obedience to God. Then lastly, witness is clear about its message. We've already spoken about the full message, but we see this point as Peter begins and explains the reasoning why God, obedience to God. He says to the people, the God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead. And that in itself is a truth that is vital to proclaim. But then he doesn't miss the point, does he? Whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. And he's pointing the finger. You crucified him and you and I are involved in that. Peter's finger is pointing at me and at you because if we had been there, we'd have done the same thing. You killed him. But then he goes on. Here's the grace. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and saviour. And for what purpose? That he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. And he's saying to the Savior, not only to, to, to you, but to all Israel, this is the truth of God. <coughs> Peter is absolutely clear about the message of Jesus Christ. 
He's clear why Jesus suffered and died. And he's clear, <coughs> excuse me, he's clear about the witness of the risen Lord and what he came to do. And he says, so is the Holy Spirit. And he's including the Holy Spirit, so the Father, Son, and Spirit are all involved. The Father sent the Son. The Son was obedient to the Father. And the Holy Spirit applies that to the heart. And the Spirit testifies to your spirit that this is true. And as believers, the Spirit testifies with our spirits that we are children of God. He confirms it to us. It's a spiritual work. It's something that's hard to describe or explain, but it is the truth of God. If we are to go out to be witnesses, we must be clear about the message that we have to take. And of course, that means we must be in that message. We must have first-hand experience of Jesus Christ as our own Lord. Just look what Peter says. He doesn't miss that. He says... To them, people, we are witnesses of these things. We saw Jesus. We saw him crucified. We saw him raised. We know he's an ascended living Savior. And he believed him. If you put your faith in Jesus, do you have first-hand knowledge of Jesus Christ so you can be a witness? If you, if you haven't that personal experience of Jesus Christ, you're no witness at all. You'll never be until you're converted. So, we need to be clear about our message and that's the reason for joining together and studying the Word. It helps us as Christians, but it also keeps clear in our minds the truth that is in Jesus Christ. A truth that the world so needs in our day. So may we learn. May we learn from these early believers May we learn that even in the face of trial, we are to be witnesses. A witness may be hindered by jealousy. Let's get rid of that. It, may, it is inspired by God's action and by God's word. It is a witness that may confound those around us. They'll think we're odd. But we do it in obedience to God. And we're clear about the message that others need to hear. Amen.